welcome to the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition podcast. I'm Judy Sondheimer. In this session, we will abstract selected articles from the March 2010 issue of JPGN, a complete table of contents, and access to the complete articles in this issue are available on the JPGN website, jpgn.org, or on our society website at naspigan.org. The first original GI article is entitled, A New Model of Chronic Haptine-Induced Colitis in Young Rats, by Fitzpatrick, Mirellis, Small, Pulio, Colton, and Cooney. The authors wished to develop a workable model of chronic inflammatory bowel disease using juvenile rather than adult animals. Using young rats with haptine-induced intestinal inflammation and fibrosis, the authors determined the profiles of key Th1, Th2, and Th17 pro-inflammatory and pro-fibrotic cytokines during the progression of colitis in young rats in an effort to fully define this potentially useful model materials and methods. Chronic colitis was induced by administering the haptine 246-trinitrobenzene sulfonic acid, or TNBS, into the colon of just weaned Wistar rats on postnatal days 23, 35, 48, and 59. After the first, third, and fourth TNBS administrations, rats were euthanized and the colons were removed for the measurement of macroscopic, histologic, and biochemical parameters of colitis. Pear-fed, untreated animals were used as controls. The young rats developed moderate to severe colitis in the distal colon without significant morbidity or mortality. Macroscopic severity, histologic pathology, and colonic weights increased progressively with repeated TNBS administration. Cobblestone-like ulceration and fibrosis were evident, particularly after four cycles of TNBS. A unique cytokine pattern was associated with colitis in young rats. Interleukin-12 and tumor necrosis factor alpha peaked on days 28 and 54 of life and then declined after the last administration up to day 67 of life. In contrast, IL-13 and IL-17 were consistently elevated after the first administration of TNBS and throughout the period of observation. The authors conclude that this model of colitis in young rats has a unique pattern of Th1, Th2, and Th17 cytokine induction, and that this chronic TNBS model might be useful for studying the development of inflammation and fibrosis in pre-adult animals. The next GI article is entitled, Reflux Events Detected by PHMII Do Not Determine Fundoplication Outcome, by Rosen, Levine, Lewis, Mitchell, and Nurko. The authors state that tests for gastroesophageal reflux do not predict who will benefit from anti-reflux surgery. Further, they could identify no studies evaluating whether the results of preoperative reflux burden measured by combined multi-channel intraluminal impedance, or MII, and esophageal pH related in any way to the outcome of fundoplication. The authors reviewed the preoperative pH MII tracings and medical records 
of 34 patients who had undergone fundoplication. Patients were categorized postoperatively as either improved or not improved, and the demographic and reflux characteristics were compared between the groups. Multivariate analysis was performed to determine predictors of outcome. The authors found that no single reflux marker obtained on MII and pH monitoring predicted the outcome of fundoplication. The markers studied included the number of acid, non-acid, and total reflux events, and the percentage of monitored time that refluxate was present in the esophagus. Neither a positive symptom index nor a positive symptom sensitivity index predicted postoperative improvement. Receiver operating characteristic curve analysis failed to reveal an ideal value to maximize sensitivity for either the symptom index or the symptom sensitivity index. The authors concluded that pH, multi-channel intraluminal impedance testing, may not be a useful tool in predicting fundoplication outcome. This article is accompanied by an editorial by Tobias Wenzel entitled Data Analysis and Interpretation in Impedance Outcome Studies. The next article is entitled Functional Constipation in Children, a Systematic Review on Prognosis and Predictive Factors by Pipers, Bongers, Beninga, and Berger. Knowledge of the prognosis and factors influencing the clinical course of functional constipation in children is important to enable general and pediatric practitioners to educate patients accurately, to compare treatment strategies, and to identify children at risk for unfavorable outcome. The objective of this study was to review and evaluate the literature on prognosis of childhood constipation with and without treatment and its predictive factors. The authors conducted an extensive literature search in Medline and Embase to identify prospective studies on the prognosis and prognostic determinants of functional constipation. Methodologic quality of the studies was assessed using a standardized list. Results on prognosis of constipation from acceptable studies were statistically pooled, and the influence of prognostic factors was summarized in a best evidence synthesis. Results. The search strategy produced 2,882 abstracts. Only 14 publications met the author's inclusion criteria, and only three of these scored very high on methodologic quality. The 14 included studies, showed large heterogeneity in study populations and outcome measures. While acknowledging that these problems might have an impact on results, the authors nonetheless found that 49.3 plus or minus 11.8% of all the children followed for 6 to 12 months were identified as recovered and were taken off laxatives. The percent of children who were free from complaints both on and off laxatives after 6 to 12 months was 60.6 plus or minus 19.2%. There was substantial evidence that defecation frequency and a positive family history were not associated with recovery from constipation. The authors concluded from their review 
that even these 14 acceptable studies showed large heterogeneity and poor methodologic quality. Overall, 60.6% of children were reported free of symptoms after 6 to 12 months. Recovery rate was not related to reported defecation frequency or positive family history. Based on the present literature, the authors were unable to identify factors predicting prognosis in chronic constipation. The next article is entitled, Detection of Polyethylene Glycol-Based Laxatives in Stool, by Sadelec, Feldman, Murray, Young, and Mazor. The ability to test stool for laxatives is important in some clinical settings. Patients may take or may be given laxatives surreptitiously. Compliance with prescribed laxatives may result in treatment failure. Although laboratory methods are available to identify some laxatives in the stool, there are none available that detect polyethylene glycol or PEG-based laxatives. The authors from Seattle Children's Hospital and the University of Washington School of Medicine developed a mass spectrometry-based analysis for detecting PEG in stool and verified the technique in one adult volunteer. They then piloted the assay on stools from children taking PEG for constipation, comparing results with stools of children with diarrhea who were not taking PEG. The mass spectrometry method to test stool for PEG is described in this paper. 11 subjects with diarrhea and 8 receiving PEG were enrolled. The stools of 9 of 11 children with diarrhea and 7 of 8 receiving PEG were studied by mass spectrometry. Three of the eight subjects taking PEG had stools tested for osmolal gap. All of the three subjects taking PEG who had a stool osmolal gap determined had elevated gaps. Stools of all seven subjects taking PEG who were studied were positive for PEG by mass spectrometry whereas none of the nine subjects with diarrhea had stools positive for PEG. The authors concluded that the combination of fecal osmolal gap measurement and mass spectrometry might prove useful in the documentation of surreptitious PEG administration and in the evaluation of PEG compliance. The first hepatology article is entitled Childhood Autoimmune Liver Disease Indications for and Outcome of Liver Transplantation by Chai, Lee, Brown, McPartland, Foster, McKiernan, and Kelly. As background, the authors state that graft rejection and disease recurrence are well-recognized complications of liver transplantation for autoimmune hepatitis, AIH, and autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis, AISC. This paper describes indications for and outcome of liver transplantation for these two diseases in children. This was a 20-year retrospective review of 101 children with autoimmune hepatitis, autoimmune sclerosing cholangitis, or AIH-AISC overlap syndrome from the liver unit, Birmingham Children's Hospital in the United Kingdom. Results. There were 67 patients with AIH type 1, 18 patients with AIH type 2, 8 patients with AISC, and 8 patients with overlap syndrome. 
18 of the 101 patients required liver transplantations, the indications being failure of medical therapy in 16 and fulminant liver failure in 2. Patients with AIH who required liver transplantation had a more prolonged prothrombin time at presentation compared with those who did not undergo transplantation. Patients with AIH type 1 who received liver transplant had lower aspartate transamination and alanine transaminase levels at initial diagnosis compared with those with AIH1 who did not undergo transplantation. Post-liver transplant, 11 patients had 18 episodes of rejection, most of which were steroid sensitive. Disease recurrence was observed in seven of the 18 transplanted patients, or 39%, at a median time after transplant of 33 months. Disease recurrence was most common in patients with AIH type 2, 80% of whom had a recurrence. In those taking cyclosporin for immunosuppression, five of seven treated patients, and in all three patients who did not take maintenance steroids post-transplant. Only two of 11 patients taking tacrolimus had recurrences. The overall survival rate post-transplant was 94% at five years and 88% at seven years. The authors conclude that liver transplantation is a good therapeutic option for progressive AIH and AISC, although recurrence of the primary autoimmune process limits the outcome. The next article is entitled Risk Factors, Complications, and Outcome of Gallstones in Children, a Single Center Review by Bogue and colleagues. The authors state that the increasing use of sonography has resulted in an increase in the proportion of children with gallstones who are asymptomatic at the time of diagnosis. In adults, the literature supports expectant management of clinically silent gallstones. The evidence for this management approach in children is limited to a number of small series. The author's objective was to review the risk factors, complications, and outcomes of gallstones at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, particularly those patients who were asymptomatic at the time of diagnosis. From January 2000, to January 2006, the authors reviewed 382 cases of gallstones in children diagnosed by sonography. Data on age at diagnosis, presentation, sonographic findings, risk factors, complications, surgery, and follow-up were collected. Chi-square tests were used to compare the complication rates between symptomatic and asymptomatic groups. Descriptive statistics were used to analyze the sample. Results. At diagnosis, 50.5% of all cases were asymptomatic. Asymptomatic patients were diagnosed at a mean of 8.23 years. Compared with symptomatic patients, they were less likely to have hemolytic anemia, but more likely to have other risk factors, including cardiac surgery, leukemia and lymphoma, short bowel syndrome, or exposure to total parenteral nutrition or cyclosporins. Asymptomatic patients had a lower rate of complications than symptomatic patients, 4.6% versus 28.2%. Among the asymptomatic patients, only 3.1% developed symptoms that necessitated surgery versus 59.0% of symptomatic patients. 
Of the 58 patients diagnosed in the first 12 months of life, which accounted for 15.1% of the reviewed cases, 47, or 81%, were asymptomatic. This infant group also had low rates of complications, 8.6, and cholecystectomy, 1.7%. Among the 91 asymptomatic patients of all ages with adequate sonographic follow-up, stones disappeared at a mean of 14 months after diagnosis in 17 or 19%. Stones were unchanged in the remainder. Separating out the infant patients, among 41 infants with sonographic follow-up, stones resolved in 14 or 34% and sludge remained in two additional patients. These data suggest that clinically silent gallstones in children and infants are associated with low rates of complication and can be managed conservatively unless complications occur. Patients with sickle cell disease, spirocytosis, and elliptocytosis had high complication rates and required surgery more often. The next article is entitled, Effects of Vitamin A Supplementation on Intestinal Barrier Function growth, total parasite, and specific Giardia infections in Brazilian children, a prospective, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial by Lima and colleagues. This study evaluated the effects of retinol supplementation on intestinal barrier function, growth, total parasites, and Giardia infections in children in northeastern Brazil. The study was double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, and involved 79 children, 39 of whom received vitamin A, 100 to 200,000 international units, and 40 of whom received placebo at enrollment and at four and eight months. Patients were studied over intervals of 36 months. Intestinal barrier function was evaluated using the lactulose to mannitol ratio test. Stool lactoferrin was used as a marker for intestinal inflammation. Treated and untreated groups were similar in age, sex, nutritional parameters, serum retinol concentrations, proportion of lactoferrin positive stool samples, and intestinal barrier function. The lactulose to mannitol ratio did not significantly change in either group during follow-up. The proportion of lactoferrin positive samples evaluated one month after the first dose of placebo or vitamin A was not different in the two groups. Total intestinal parasitic infections, and specifically new infections, were significantly lower in the vitamin A-treated group compared with controls. The difference was entirely due to significantly fewer new Giardia infections in the vitamin A-treated group. The cumulative Z-scores for nutritional parameters were not significantly changed over control by vitamin A intervention during 36 months of follow-up. Conclusions. These data showed that total parasitic infection and Giardia infections were significantly lower in the vitamin A treated group when compared with the placebo group, suggesting that vitamin A improves the host's defense against Giardia infection. The following is a short communication from McGugan, Smith, Choi, Berman, and Javari from Duke University entitled Performance of the AST to Platelet Ratio Index 
as a non-invasive marker of fibrosis in pediatric patients with chronic viral hepatitis. In this retrospective study, the authors investigated the performance of aspartate aminotransferase to platelet ratio index, or APRI, as a non-invasive marker of fibrosis and cirrhosis in children with chronic viral hepatitis. All patients 0 to 20 years old with chronic hepatitis B or C presenting at a tertiary medical center from 1992 to 2008 were, were identified. 36 of these patients had a total of 48 liver biopsies. These biopsies were studied along with the APRI of the patients. The areas under the receiver operating characteristic curve were 0.071 for fibrosis and 0.052 for cirrhosis. When examining subgroups, the APRI performed better in older patients and in those with vertically transmitted hepatitis C virus. The authors suggest that prospective studies of the AST to platelet ratio index and other non-invasive markers of fibrosis in children with chronic viral hepatitis is warranted. This concludes the podcast of the March 2010 issue of JPGN. Other original articles in this issue include the following titles, Effects of Timing, Sex, and Age on the Site-Specific Gastrointestinal Permeability Testing in Children and Adults, Prolonged Enteral Feeding is Often Required After Esophagogastric Disassociation, Familial Clustering of Habitual Constipation in Children from West Virginia, Comparison of clinical associations and laboratory abnormalities in children with moderate and severe dehydration. Fatty acid profiles in human milk sampled at six weeks and six months postpartum. And protection of intestinal occluding tight junction protein by dietary ganglioside's in lipopolysaccharide-induced acute inflammation. The table of contents, abstracts, and full articles of this issue can be found at jpgn.org or at the Society website, naspigan.org. The editors of JPGN are Eric Sibley and David Bransky. I'm Judy Sondheimer. Music